0: Go ahead and now turn to God's word. We'll be reading Psalm 107 together. Uh, it's a little bit more of a lengthy passage, so bear with me. I'll pray at the end and we'll look at it in more uh, in more detail. Psalm 107 verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God, and he spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Let's pray. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, would your Holy Spirit Translate these words, Father, would he engage our minds and prompt transformation of our hearts? Would we see your glory and would we see your steadfast love? Would we see how loyal you are to us, that you are for us when we call on you? And in your holy name, I pray, amen. Last week, uh, John Sear, who's our children's director here, Uh, stood on this platform, and he said that he works with some Scrooges that don't listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. I am one of those Scrooges, right? Don't get me wrong, I love Christmas, and I love the music, and I love the movies, but I think it's important not to pass over a season so quickly that prompts us to express thankfulness. As we are in a season of thankfulness, as we look toward Thanksgiving, I thought it would be appropriate to look to Psalm 107, which is naturally known as a psalm of Thanksgiving. I've come to find that for most people, the holiday of Thanksgiving looks very familiar. For me, we sit around, we eat a lot of food, we watch a lot of football. And as I'm about halfway through my mashed potatoes, without fail there is always someone who says, let's go around the table and say one thing that we're thankful for. It's incredibly cliche and the answers are just as cliche as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a somewhat vague activity because um, the thanks that are given are not really directed towards anybody a lot of the times, right? You, you typically, particularly get somebody who will say, I'm really thankful for my family. Really thankful for my home. I'm thankful for my children. I'm thankful for all the love in my life. Uh, One one person coincidentally always is thankful for their health as they've just eaten 5,000 calories. (laughs) Right? It's, It's an odd thing because we're really good at mentioning things that we're thankful for, but what is noticeably missing from this activity a lot is who we are thankful to. It's odd because whenever we receive a gift, you know, we've learned we should, we should express thanks not just for the gift, but to the person that gave the gift. When we write thank you notes, we thank a person, not just for the, the object, right? We always thank the giver of the gift. And so in this regard, the first verse of Psalm 107 is very clear that as believers, we are always called to give thanks. But you'll notice in this psalm, particularly in other psalms, it is always coupled with give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Now, why do we give thanks to the Lord? Because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. That's the premise of this entire psalm. Give thanks to the Lord because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Now, we live in a skeptical world, in a skeptical time, and so if I tell you to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever, you may say, well, how do you know? Prove it. Who, who are you, right? That's why in verses 2 and 3, the psalmist writes, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. Essentially what the psalmist is saying, he's asking for a witness of sorts. He's imploring people who have been redeemed to give testimony to God's goodness, to his steadfast love. He's saying there are hundreds and thousands of people who have experienced God's goodness and his steadfast love. And so if you don't believe me, you can go and talk to the hundreds and thousands of other people who have experienced this firsthand. They've experienced some kind of trouble and God has redeemed them from some, such trouble. He's saying, don't take my word for it. Let the collection of the cloud of witnesses tell you their stories. Listen to the stories of God's goodness and his steadfast love. Listen to these people who have experienced real hardship firsthand and are able to tell you in good conscience that he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. For the Israelites, who this psalm was written by and for, they have experienced such trouble firsthand. This nation had a knack for always getting themselves in trouble and then turning over to God in submission and God restoring them. Throughout its entire history, the nation of Israel was constantly being rescued, redeemed, and restored. This particular psalm was most likely written after what has been known in history as the Babylonian exile. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were God's special people, a special nation that God made a covenant with, through Abraham saying, I promise that that I will be your God and you will be my people. And I promise to give you a land for your nation to inherit. It is this this covenant, this promise. However, the Israelites didn't live up to their end of the bargain. They broke this covenant and rebelled against God. And God would allow them, he would give them over essentially to their sin, to their rebellion. And they would be conquered by a couple of different nations. One of those nations in particular was Babylon. And around 597 BC, the Babylonians take the Israelites captive and they exile them out of their homeland, right? This was a tragic event in the history of Israel. But after 70 years, God brought them back to their home. They were redeemed. They know what it's like to be able to sit here And say, I am one of the redeemed. And so I give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Right? They they were gathered from distant lands, which is what verse 3 says, right? And so the first three verses set the scene of this great deliverance that Israel experienced from exile, right? And then we come to four different pictures Four different portraits, if you will, of what this great deliverance metaphorically looks like. This is poetry and it's meant to be, be looked at metaphorically, right? In my house, if you walk into the living room, you will see four different pictures of my children. They're unique, they're different, but they were all at the same photo shoot. They all tell the story of one event, and so while they're unique, and while they're different, they represent different aspects of my family, they do point to one story. They, they show one picture of the Kazarowski family. In Psalm 107, the psalmist gives us four pictures. Gives us four painted pictures, photographs, if you, if you will, and they are unique in nature, but they are all representative of this one event, God redeeming the people of Israel through exile. And so I'd like to walk briefly through these four pictures. I'd like to point out the intricate brush strokes in the text, but at the end, we'll tie them all together and we'll see the beauty of how they are all connected and pointing to one idea. And so let's walk through this. We come to the first picture on the wall, verses four through nine. This picture could easily be called the wanderer is retrieved. The wanderer is retrieved. In verses 4 and 5, it shows us this picture of this group of people who are wandering in desert wastes. And this is an absolute dire situation. I, I used to watch this show a while back called I Shouldn't Be Alive. You've probably seen it before. It tells the tales of these people who probably shouldn't be alive in their given circumstances. And there was one episode that stuck out with me, uh, d- d- stuck out to me that has stuck with me, of these teenage scouts uh, who were at the Grand Canyon and decided to go off on a trail that wasn't marked. They decided to do essentially an off-trail route, and it almost cost them their life because they were lost, wandering in the desert. This is the type of situation that's happening in this first picture. The person or the people described in this psalm, they aren't merely meandering. They aren't traveling from point A to point B. They are straight up lost in the desert. They are off the beaten path, and they no longer know which direction to walk. They don't know which way is north. They don't know which way is south or east or west. It's not even like they're lost on the path. There's just no path. And they're wandering aimlessly. And worse yet, they have no more resources that can save them. And so they're hungry and they're thirsty. And we read that their soul fainted within them. Basically, this means that they have given up all hope for rescue. On every episode that I saw of that TV show, I Shouldn't Be Alive, the people who were in danger eventually accepted their fate because they knew how helpless they were. They knew that there was nothing in their own strength or resources that could save them. And so they would often admit to themselves and others that were with them that said, this is it, We, we are at the end of the line here. We are going to die because of this circumstance. This is what's happening in the first picture. They've accepted their fate and having nothing that can save them, they decide to resort to calling out to the Lord. And out of his goodness and steadfast love, he delivers them from their distress. He brings them back to the path, which leads them to a city that is full of resources, which satisfy their hunger and quench their thirst. And so what do they do? What is their only proper response? They thank God for his steadfast love and wondrous works. The wanderer is retrieved, and the only proper response is to thank God. That's the first picture. Moving on to the second picture, in verses 10 through 16, this picture could easily be called, The Prisoner is Released. The Prisoner is Released. This is a picture of a prison cell. It's cold, and it's dark, and it's grimy. And in this prison cell is a man who is on death row. He sits behind iron bars, and the next time these iron bars open up, he will be escorted to his coffin as he receives the death penalty. It talks about him sitting in the shadow of death. Think about this for a moment. If you are sitting in something's shadow, that means that it's larger than you, taller than you, blocking any kind of resemblance of light and it looms over you. And so the picture that we get is this man has death looming over him. It's just towering over him. Now, perhaps in the first picture of the wanderer, they got in their predicament by accident They wandered off the path in ignorance, but not this guy. No, he is in prison. He is in there because of his own doing. He committed treason. He rebelled against not just God, but God's words. See, God gave his word. He spoke to this person or these people, and they openly rejected him. He gave them counsel, and we know from other psalms that God's word leads to life, and they rejected that, that word, thereby rejecting life itself. They spurned his counsel, and now they sit in the shadow of death because they refused to listen to God. And he sits in a cold, dark cell, banished from society, and no one was able to help. He has nothing that can save him. And so the prisoner calls on God. The very God that he's spurned and rejected is now the one that he is calling on for help. And maybe, just maybe, God will respond. And out of his goodness and steadfast love, he delivers them from their distress. It says that God brought them out of the darkness, out of death, and burst open the prison cell. And so what do they do? They thank God for his steadfast love and wondrous works. The prisoner is released. And the only proper response is to thank God. It's the second picture hanging on the wall. Now we move to the third picture. In verses 17 through 22, this one's called, The sick is restored. The sick is restored. In this picture, you have a person or a group of people and they are called fools in verse 17. Now, in the biblical sense, the word fool is not necessarily an unintelligent person like we may use the word, but rather it's a perverse person. It's somebody who is obstinate or stubborn and has no regard for truth, has no regard for what's morally right. You see the fool in the biblical sense only lives in the moment and he only lives for himself and he has no regard for the care of himself or the care of others or for his future. This is the type of person that lives only for the hour and who is reckless with resources and ends up losing it all and getting himself in trouble. And this, this fool who doesn't have regard for truth or his very own well-being has now suffered affliction by his own hand. He he has gotten himself into this mess and is now suffering the consequences that has him knocking on death's door. The, The picture that we get is somebody that is extremely sick because of something they did. A modern example of this, if you're trying to rack your brain of what this would look like, is actually somebody who would be like a drug addict or an alcoholic. They know that they're destroying their body, but they do it anyway because they're only living in the moment. And so, once again, in their sickness, they cry out to God in their trouble and out of his goodness and steadfast love, God delivers them from their distress. God restores them. He heals them. And they no longer suffer the affliction that was brought on by their own hand. And so, what do they do? They thank God for his steadfast love and wondrous works. The sick are restored, and the only proper response is to thank God. That's the third picture. Finally, we come to the final picture. Verses 23 through 32. This is entitled, The Battered is Rescued. The Battered is Rescued. And coincidentally, it looks strikingly similar to the story of Jonah, which we just finished up. You've got a group of people that set out, set sail on the sea to do business, and a giant storm hits. We get this picture of just these massive waves that are going up and these massive waves that are, that are coming down. Yesterday, my family and I got the chance to visit Splash Lagoon and my children's favorite part of the whole day was the wave pool. We spent a ton of money just for them to sit in the wave pool all day, right? because they loved these waves that were going really, really high above their head and then sinking really, really down low. And while it may be fun and cute and a sweet family moment, for these sailors, these waves are terrifying, right? Because for these sailors, these waves are towering way above their heads and it's sinking down low, way down deep into the sea. And we get this picture of these massive waves just throwing the ship like a little toy boat, Right, the picture is a little bit different from the previous two, and much more like the first one because it shows a, a people who are helpless and humbled and small. One commentator notes that the people in this picture come to understand that in a world of gigantic forces that are out of our control, we live by permission, not by good management. They are at the mercy, at the liberty of these giant waves, this giant storm that they have no control of. And we see this in verse 27 where the sailors are tossed kind of back and forth. It likens it. It that he says they looked like drunken men just trying to get their footing. They couldn't even hold on to anything. They're so being thrown to the left and to the right. And then it says that they were at their wits' end right this is an important phrase that we have to understand in our context that these sailors were at their wits end the the phrase literally reads that all of their wisdom was swallowed up what this means is that all of their skill all of their knowledge all of their wisdom all of their expertise in sailing no longer mattered it was all useless the the idea is you could be the the Most experienced sailor with the most knowledge on how to sail. And it means nothing in this situation. And this is a very important picture to understand because there is a dangerous philosophy that is prominent in our culture right now that says if there is a problem, the answer can be found from within. Right? You know, it says, when I come up against adversity, when I come up against affliction, I just need to turn in on myself and dig down deep into the depths of, of my soul and just muster up something. You hear it all the time. Just, just dig down deep and muster up enough strength or muster up enough, enough wisdom or muster up enough heart. I don't even know what that means. What does it mean to muster up heart? What what, what they're saying is I need to rely on my own wits. I need to rely on myself. I can do it. It's this philosophy that is self-empowering but leaves people delusional because sometimes there will be situations where you are at your wit's end. There will be scenarios where you don't have what it takes. There will be situations where all of your strength and all of your wisdom and all of your heart still isn't enough because we're weak and we're broken And we are at the mercy of forces much more powerful than us. And that's what the sailors come to realize. I can't look inside because there's not enough there. And so we need to look to something on the outside. And that's what they do. They look to God having realized that the solution isn't from within, it's actually on the outside. They cry out to God in their trouble and out of his goodness and steadfast love, he delivers them from their distress. It says that God stilled the storm. Think about this these waves, these treacherous waves that towered to the top and sang to the low that were throwing them around like a toy boat that that had the chance of taking their life. God looks at the waves and it says that he hushes the waves. Almost like a mother to a crying baby says, shh, just shh, just calm down. And the waves sat still. How powerful is God that He can quiet the waves? The waves sat still, and the sailors are brought to their proper destination. And so, what do they do? They thank God for His steadfast love and wondrous works. The battered is rescued, and the only proper response is to thank God. To the final picture on the wall. Now, I hope that as we walked through those four pictures, you could pick up on the theological thread that is woven through each of these four pictures. While they are all distinct and different, each follows the exact same pattern. When viewed as a whole, they all tell the same story, right? What's that story? You have a person or a group of people that are in trouble. They are hopeless, they are helpless, and they are in a deadly situation. So they cry out to God for help, and God miraculously intervenes. And they are left praising and thanking God for his steadfast love and wondrous works. This whole psalm is a graphic testimony of God's steadfast love for those who call on him. For deliverance. And for the Israelites, this would have been incredibly significant and incredibly personal because their history is littered with moments where they are in disastrous situations and God intervenes. And if, if you turn to Exodus 12 and 14, what would you come to find? You would find how the Israelites are held captive by the Egyptians in the south and God delivers them. If you go to 2 Samuel 8, you read how the Israelites came up against the Philistines to the west, and then God delivers them. If you went to 2 Kings 19, you would see how the Israelites are invaded from, by the Assyrians in the north, but then God delivers them. And if you turn to the book of Ezra, you would read how the Babylonians from the from the east exiled them, but then God delivers them. And so if I could draw your attention to verse 3 again to show you how personal this is for the Israelites, it talks about them being redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. This is, 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 a, is a literal picture of Israel's rich redemptive history. And so you see the purpose of this psalm to the original reader. As one commentator notes, this is to shape Israel's understanding of their history and see where God fits in. How God has always delivered through wondrous deeds because of his steadfast love for his people. These four pictures, metaphorical in nature, look to Israel's relation to God. The four scenes are essentially four ways of looking at the same reality. That reality being that Israel was a helpless nation that needed to be rescued, and so they turned to God, who not only had the capacity to save, but due to his steadfast love, did save. This is the whole point of steadfast love. We talked about it a little bit last week, but I want to remind you what steadfast love is. Steadfast love is not some kind of emotion that God musters up for his people. Steadfast love is a choice to be loyal. Steadfast love for God is a fierce loyalty to his covenant people. He's saying no matter what happens, if you call on me, I will rescue you. This is my steadfast love for you. This is my commitment to you that I will deliver you, that I will redeem you. And because God is unchanging in his attributes, because he is left, uh, because he is what we would call immutable, he, he doesn't change, we can easily take the metaphorical nature of this psalm and apply it to our context. And maybe you read this and you relate and you say, I know what it's like to be a spiritual wanderer. I feel lost right now. I know what it's like to be in the bondage of my sin, feeling the weight of the shadow of death. I know what it's like to be sick and not just sick, but sick because it's something I messed up. I was a bonehead and I did something stupid and now I'm feeling the repercussions for it. I know what it's like to be battered and beaten and thrown by the waves and feel helpless and humble. I f- know what it's like to be at my wits' ends. You may sit here and you look just fine, but in your heart and in your mind, you know that you sit in darkness. You feel the weight of the shadow of death. If that is you this morning, let me remind you of the steadfast love of the Lord. Let me point you to Psalm 107 and remind you that we have a God who is able to deliver and has delivered and will deliver again. This is our hope as believers in God and followers of Christ. We know this to be true because he has delivered us from the greatest calamity of all time that being our sin. Your sin is the greatest act of rebellion you will ever commit. Your sin is the greatest calamity that you will ever experience. But God has delivered you from it, and it's on the cross that God uses as a channel for this deliverance. John Piper, in his reflections on Psalm 107, says this, The fact that Jesus died in our place, covered all of our sin, took all of our guilt, removed all of our condemnation, and has provided us with perfection and a righteousness which we could never perform on our own, this is the ground upon which everyone who trusts in him can claim the same mercy from Psalm 107 for themselves. If you cry to him, he will come and he will care because that's what Christ bought for us when he died. That is a covenantal, steadfast love that Christ has for you. That if you cry out to him, he will intervene and he will respond. God is saying, if you call on me in Jesus' name, I will rescue you from the lostness of your sin. I will rescue you from the bondage of your sin. I will rescue you from the sickness of your sin. I will rescue you from the destruction of, of your sin that is a promise. Know that God is for you and God has intervened through Jesus Christ. He loves you and he is committed to you. And so would you call out to him? And perhaps he won't redeem in the way that you think in your situations. But when all is said and done, when eternity comes, all will be restored. All will be redeemed for those who are in Christ. There will come a day where the things you struggle with, the way that sin has an effect on you, will be redeemed. And so you see, this is what makes Christianity so unique. It's so different than any other belief system in the entire world in that all other religions are all about what you have to do for God. But Christianity is not about what you have to do for God. It's all about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. How God has intervened in your life. And so what is our proper response? Give thanks to the Lord for his wondrous works and steadfast love. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we, it's so hard to um, do justice what you've done for us. So to look at a passage like this, Lord, and to try and even explain um, uh, your steadfast love and your wondrous works just scratches the surface. Lord, how deep is your love for us? How deep is your grace and your mercy and your deliverance? Lord, I pray, Father, that in the depths of our soul, your spirit would move, Lord, and transform us and that we would see who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And we would see the redemptive history that you have had, not just for the nation of Israel, but for us as a believing group of people. I pray, Father, that in the moments where we're not sure where you're at, we would remember that you have delivered and you will deliver again. I lift up our offering to you today, Father. Would you bless it? Uh, would you bless those that have relinquished their rights to these funds that they're giving, Lord? I pray that this would be a spiritual exercise uh, for us to depend on you, Lord. And would these funds and these offerings and these tithes, would they be used to glorify the name of Jesus Christ? And in your holy name I pray, amen.